obvious error that a person can make, which is to tell you what to read for the week rather than for the day, um, <laughs> which is that you probably didn't read it. Um, but you really, we'll, we'll look at a few poems today, and I know that you did read um, To the Pious Memory of Ann Killigrew. Uh, what we will do today is look at a few poems, what you, and you'll all be caught up with your reading on Friday, and um, then next Tuesday we don't have class. So whatever catching up you want to nail down by catching up again uh, before we um, come back to class a week from Friday, you'll have an opportunity to do that. But what you really um, should read for Friday is the preface to fables. That is the prose that you should really read for Friday is the preface to fables. The uh, Virgil and Homer, who is one of the fables, is uh, necessary for the exam that we're having in this class, um, but it's probably not the most pressing thing to read. I think you're probably getting a sense, a little bit of a sense, of how Dryden writes in heroic couplets. Um, he does, part of, part of what should be happening, and this will be extended when we get to Rochester, and really extended when we get to Pope, is that as you get more used to the heroic couplet, which we've talked about from time to time, I mean, the process of getting used to it is something we've already talked about from time to time, uh, you'll be more sensitive. You'll get more and more sensitive to the effects that um, it produces and that it can produce, the way that Dryden, um, when and how he uses triplets, um, when and how he uses Alexandrines, Alexandrines, when and how he combines them, when he interrupts lines, uh, which is another thing that he will sometimes do. Uh, you may have noticed that, um, where, where you get half lines or even less than half lines um, in the middle of a poem that's otherwise proceeding in couplets. That's, uh, that is something that Dryden um, kind of invents as a rhetorical moment, that is that you just stop to say something passionate and you don't simply absorb it into the um, lines that you're writing. Um, and it's in a way, in the heroic couplet, it's the, it's the thing that's closest to what he's doing in the odes that um, we're reading. Um, the odes are, the, I'll just say the odes are very irregular. They're, um, they're called Pindaric Odes, and what a Pindaric Ode is essentially an irregular ode, not one that follows a predictable um, rhyme scheme in any way. So um, if you, when you see him interrupting lines of poetry, um, it's partly because they're in hero couplets, it's partly because um, there's suddenly something powerful um, which he is struck to say, which he simply wants to say um, in a striking way um, in one, in, of one sort or another. Um, the, um, idea, though, of that kind of line break, there's a story that Dryden tells about Virgil, um, and this is actually a, a good way into um, talking about some of the issues we'll talk about today. Uh, there's a story that Dryden tells about Virgil reading um, uh, the Aeneid aloud to Augustus Caesar. 
Um, the Aeneid is Virgil, as you'll know, as you'll know from having read Dryden's translation of it, is Virgil's great poem about the founding of Rome, but it's a poem about the founding of Rome which basically says, this is the beginning of what is now coming into its full glory 700 years later with Augustus um, becoming the leader of Rome. And, um, and Virgil read some of that poetry to Augustus, and Dryden tells a story about um, Virgil himself leaving a line um, uh, partial, half um, putting in only half a line. And then while he was reading it aloud to Augustus, um, he suddenly decided to complete the line. And that was a moment of passion on his part. That is, um, a moment of interruption got disinterrupted. Um, Dryden is very interested in this story at the moment of, of the um, Virgil suddenly and passionately responding to his own passionate incompleteness by finishing the line and making it um, a greater and better line than it was. And partly I draw, I draw your attention to that just to say that, that Dryden's broken lines, um, the kind that you sometimes get, um, especially in his philosophical poems, um, they're rhetorical. Um, they do stand for a moment of, and this, and you stop right there. Um, what I, what I um, just passed around is um, a painting, one of, I think, only three that are known to survive by Anne Killigrew. Um, it's not the one that you have the poem describing. Um, the poem is... Um, titled in full on a picture painted by herself. That is, Anne Killigrew writes a poem about one of her own paintings um, on a picture painted by herself representing two nymphs of Diana's, one in a posture to hunt, the other bathing. Um, that picture painted by herself is, um, it would seem, lost. Um, but it's, this is a painting also of a mythological scene um, by Anne Killigrew, and it is Venus and the Three Graces. And so what you can see is that Venus is in the foreground, the largest figure in the painting. Um, she is talking to the Three Graces. Uh, the Graces, you may or may not know, um, represent um, giving, receiving, and returning. That is um, what grace um, is about is a kind of circulation of graciousness, um, a circulation of itself. So the graces um, give out of generosity, they receive graciously, and then they give back, or they give something else back um, also graciously. And that's kind of, um, if, you put it, if you put Venus um, in with the three graces, what you're getting is um, a kind of uh, connection of um, graciousness with love, or the idea that um, love is itself the most gracious of things. And um, you will also note that there's in the, at, at the right there's a satyr who's bearing um, um, uh, plenty, bearing um, fruits um, for the sort of picnic that they're having, and there is um, an Amoretti or an amaretto, um, a little cupid, um, up on the top. So there's love and graciousness all combined here. Um, the poem on a picture painted by yourself representing um, two nymphs of Diana's. Do you all have that? Have that? I distributed it. Um, do you need a copy? Here. 
Yeah. Anyone else? Okay, I, I'm going to keep one, and you guys can share. Um, um, it's just worth, it's, um, Dryden refers to this painting. Um, so it's, it's worth, uh, in, in his poem on Anne Kilgrew, so it's worth looking at. Um, I'm, excuse me, refers to this poem in his poem on Anne Killigrew. It's a good poem. It's a really good poem. Terry Castle anthologizes it in her literature of lesbianism. Um, and it certainly deserves lots of anthologizing. Um, so, and it's in a different mode, but a mode that sometimes Dryden writes in than the heroic couplet. So, but the, the um, again, the context here, just to have in mind, is that um, um, you have here a poem which is describing a painting. And this is the, this mode, the, mo the description of a work of art, whether imaginary or not, um, is called ekphrasis. That is, it's descriptive poetry, but not just regular descriptive poetry, but poetry which, which describes a work of visual art. And um, if you're both a painter and a poet and you write a poem about a painting that you've done, um, then you are certainly um, making ekphrasis your vocation. So um, one of these nymphs of Diana's, who's Diana? Goddess of? The goddess of hunt and, and also the goddess of? She would rather hunt than what? Yes, then have sex. Um, so the great story of Diana is, or the, the story of Artemis seeing Diana bathing is the story of how he was destroyed for um, seeing her um, in that um, position. So here are two of her nymphs, two of her followers. We are Diana's virgin train, because Diana is the virgin. We are Diana's virgin train, descended of no mortal strain. Our bows and arrows are our goods our palaces, the lofty woods. So that's where they want to be is in the woods. And what they want to own are the things they can hunt with. Our bows and arrows are our goods. Our palaces, the lofty woods. The hills and dales at early morn resound and echo with our horn. We chase the hind and fallow deer. The wolf and boar both dread our spear. In swiftness, we outstrip the wind and eye and thought we leave behind. Um, you can start seeing why there's a poem as well as a painting, um, because none of this can be represented in painting. That is their swiftness and the way they leave behind both eye and thought. In the painting, which presumably is in this 18th century mode and looks something like this, they're not leaving the eye and the thought behind. They're not outstripping the wind. So there has to be a kind of supplement in the poem describing that very painting. We fawns and shaggy satyrs awe. So the shaggy satyr is what you get over here. Um, that's, who they, that's whom they awe. We fawns and shaggy satyrs awe. To sylvan powers we give the law. Whatever does provoke our hate, our javelins strike as sure as fate. 
We bathe in springs to cleanse the soil contracted by our eager toil. So um, again, one in a posture to hunt, the other bathing. One is engaged in the eager toil or about to engage in it, and the other one is bathing in order to cleanse the soil contracted by our eager toil, in which we shine like glittering beams or crystal in the crystal streams. So um, as they bathe, they shine like glittering beams or crystal in the crystal streams. Though Venus, we transcend in form, no wanton flames our bosoms warm. So we're more beautiful than Venus herself, um, but without any wantonness. Our beauty um, does not, is not um, a representation or expression of our sexuality. No wanton flames our bosoms warm. If you ask where such whites do dwell, in what best clime that so excel, the poets only that can tell. So if you ask where there are such people, um, where there are such beings, um, where there are such um, goddesses or nymphs, um, only poets can tell you. And um, there's a lot of irony there, but it's not, um, that is, if you want to find this place, go look to the poets or the liars. Um, there are no real people like this. Um, but there's also a sense that um, it's poetry alone that can um, actually bring you to this kind of world, a kind of world that painting can't. Um, painting um, whatever you think or whatever they think about their own sexuality, a painting of them presumably um, part of what it's doing is appealing to the sexuality of the viewer just as Artemis um, did sexualize, was sexually attracted um, to Diana bathing. Um, so if you want the really um, the non-sexual sense of this, you have to go to the poets and not to the painting. Um, partly I bring this up because it's um, the more general point is that um, there's um, both a connection and a tension between um, different forms of art. And that's something that, um, that question, what the relation of the different forms of art is, goes way, way back. Um, I quoted for you before, maybe I didn't, maybe, I think it may have been actually in the other class, um, Horace's dictum that um, poetry should be like painting. Um, the famous line is, ut pictura poesis. Um, you should make your poem like a painting. Um, as with pictures, so with poetry. Um, but there's also tension between them. Poems um, show you motion, pa paintings show you stillness. Poems give you narrative, paintings give you a moment in narrative. And especially with um, the development of modern painting, um, you don't get a series of events, but you get a single event which contains its past and its future. That's the whole point about a certain kind of mythological 18th, 17th and 18th century painting is that you're looking at a moment that is a crucial or crisis moment in a lot of those paintings of mythological scenes and you know what has happened and you know what will happen if you know the story. But you still need to know the story. You know the story from poetry. Um, Dryden is interested, very interested in um, 
the kinds of tensions as well as the kind of um, harmony that can um, arise between different modes of aesthetic experience. Um, he's interested in it in drama, he's interested in it in poetry, he's interested in it in music, and we'll be looking at the um, two uh, St. Cecilia, Saint Cecilia's Day odes, um, and he's interested in it here in painting. Um, so let's just look, we won't go through the whole um, um, ode to Anne Killigrew. What I should say is Dryden probably knew her, but not well. Um, this isn't an ode that he's writing because he's um, personally in such pain over her death, um, but he certainly knew her, <coughs> knew her painting um, and he knew her poetry. And um, as with Milton's elegy Lycidas on the death of Edward King, um, it's usually the case that the best elegies are the ones where um, the poet is thinking about grief rather than experiencing it, thinking about the representation of grief rather than simply expressing a real grief that he or she feels. That seems to be the history of elegy, um, seems to be, in general, the history of um, grief examined rather simply than um, overwhelming grief finding expression. Um, there are exceptions to this, but um, and some obviously to be an exception, it has to be pretty great. There are exceptions to this, um, but that seems to be the general rule. Um, let's look. It, it's it's worth looking at the structure of the ode, um, but we won't. Um, that is, the ode has a very very careful. Um, architecture, and you know, if you're looking for a paper topic, I'll just mention that we're not looking at the very careful architecture of this ode. Um, but essentially, um, the que it begins with the question that all elegies do, which is, um, why would someone die at this stage? Um, why would someone die young? Um, what are we to make of the fact that they've died young. Um, and let's look at this person um, who is who died young and who shouldn't have died young because she was so different and important to the world. And for Dryden, that becomes a look at the nature of poetry. That is, here is this great poet, Anne Killigrew, um, and um, let's talk about what it means for her to be a poet and what her being a poet might have done or, or um, how it might have affected the world. Um, so um, if you go to stanza three, he asks, may we presume to say that at thy birth new joy was sprung in heaven as well as here on earth, um, that there was new joy everywhere for you, for sure, the milder planets did combine on thy auspicious horoscope to shine, and even the most malicious were in trine. That is, um, in the best um, horoscopical, um, uh, astrological position to prevent malice. Thy brother angels at thy birth strung each his lyre and tuned it high, 
So you were an angel, and your brother angels all played their lyre when you were born. Why? That all the people of the sky might know a poetess was born on Earth. So the people of the sky are the angels and the gods, and when you were born on Earth, this was announced in heaven. And then, if ever, mortal ears had heard the music of the spheres. Um, so when the brother angels played their celebration of Anne Killigrew's birth. Then, if ever, mortal ears had heard, that is, would have heard, the music of the spheres. Um, why? Because, well, for two reasons. Um, I guess I could ask this as a question. Why? Why would that be the time when um, mortal ears would hear the music of the spheres? when the angels um, tuned and, and played their lyres. See, you ask a real question, everyone thinks it's rhetorical. George? Because she was so unusual a person. Mm -hmm. So that um, there are several possible ways of understanding that, but in a sense they all converge. Um, one is that the music of the spheres, do people know what the music of the spheres is? It gets referred to in the um, Odom St. Cecilia's Day also. Um, okay, so this is something you really need to know. <laughs> um, according to Platonic and Neoplatonic um, views of the universe, um, if you look up at the heavens, what you see are um, the different spheres which it, that the different stars move in. Um, so it was essentially thought that the best model for the universe was a series of concentric spheres with Earth in the very middle. Um, and um, clearly these spheres moved because you could see the stars and the planets um, orbiting the Earth, circling the Earth, both daily and yearly. That is, there's, there's, um, the sun rises and sets, the moon um, rises and sets, the moon also um, um, waxes and wanes over the course of a lunar month. Um, then the other planets also rise and set, but their um, motion takes much longer. Um, they all move in predictable ways, but, um, but the ways are all different from each other. Um, in particular, as we now know, the planets that are closer to the sun than, than we are um, move differently in the sky from the planets that are farther away from the sun than we are. And then after that, the fixed stars also move differently in the sky. So the idea was that there's a very complicated relationship among all this astronomical motion. Um, that astronomers could see and um, even predict the complicated relationship. That's where astrology comes from. And that that relationship is a kind of harmony, a heavenly harmony, um, that's occurring among all these different things. And that they produce music. But it's a music that can't be heard on Earth. It's a music that can be heard in the heavens. Um, but not on Earth. So we on Earth are deaf to the music of the spheres. Um, and um, because of that, we only have our own what's called sublunary music. Sublunary literally means, do people, have pe do people know that word? If you talk about sublunary life, 
Is this a word at all familiar to you? S-U-B-L-U-N-A-R-Y? Under the radar, um, no, it doesn't. But what it means is um, every day. Um, in our sublunary world, we can't expect miracles to happen. In our sublunary world, the good doesn't always win, um, and the evil sometimes um, is successful, and evil people sometimes get rewarded rather than punished. So it's a way of describing this fallen world. It's often used as an adjective or it's used coextensionally, that is to describe the same things and the same kinds of things um, that the word fallen will often be used to describe. George, were you gonna say something? Does it come from under the moon? Yeah, it literally means under the moon. So the part of the universe which is below the sphere of the moon is the sublunary part. Um, and that's essentially our world. Um, the sphere above our world is that of the moon, and above the moon is that of the sun, and above the sun is that of the planets and then the stars. Um, so the music of the spheres is something that can't be heard below the sphere of the moon, can't be heard in our sublunary world, although there are some traditions that the music of the spheres was actually heard at the birth of Christ. Um, mortals at that time could hear the music of the spheres. Um, so... That's partly what Dryden is alluding to here. Um, that is that when she was born, it was like the birth of a poetic Christ, or it was important in a way similar to the birth of Jesus. A heavenly being was born on earth. Um, then her brother angels strung, each of their brother angels strung his lyre and tuned it high that all the people of the sky might know a POTUS was born on earth. That is, they have to announce to the heavens that there's this amazing singer who is born on earth. And because they announced something, uh, the music, the heavenly music was announcing a fact about the earth, it may therefore have been that we on earth heard it. Then we might have heard the music of the spheres when they announced to the people of the sky that Anne Killigrew was born. Yeah? Would this have been at all heretical at the time? Like the idea that there was an exception made for Jesus and for this one woman? It would be heretical if it weren't um, uh, clearly over the top uh, mythologizing of um, a human being. That is that it's con if it weren't conventional it would be heretical. Um, I, what I would say is it's a, you should think of it as kind of like um, when um, paintings for patrons will show the Holy Family and one member of the Holy Family will actually be the guy who paid for the painting. It'll be his face as, as Joseph, for example. Um, so the idea is that we're referring in an over-the-top way to, to myths and to religious backgrounds, and clearly it is over-the-top, um, but it's, it's the, the excessiveness points to you what, um, uh, what the unique arch archetype is that, that is being sort of is being used here. Um, so it would be heretical if he meant it, um, but he doesn't mean it. Um, but it doesn't mean that he's not, it doesn't mean that it's ironic. It means that it's conventional. 
um, to, to engage in. I mean, well, the more general point is poetry of praise is very hard because um, praise itself is conventional. The more you praise someone, the more you have to have recourse to um, conventional comparisons. And um, so the trick in writing poetry of praise, um, what makes it an incredibly hard genre is how boring it usually is. Um, most people don't like, re don't like reading poetry of praise. And all poetry, all, any good poet who writes poetry of praise knows that, knows that it's really, really difficult to make it at all arresting. Um, and the reason it's difficult to make it at all arresting is, is because of this interplay between the conventional and it's, it's conventional to claim that someone is unique. So how do you then claim that they're unique without being conventional about it? And um, for that reason, this is part of the conventional thing. Yeah, it's just like when Jesus was born. That's what your birth was like. Um, well, how do you do something else with that? That's what Dryden is working on. Yeah. It's also a lot more acceptable to say it now that she's dead than it would have been. Oh, yeah. No, no, if she were alive, it would be ridiculous. Yeah. Um, that is, oh, yes, you know, I look at you and I think, ha, I'm so glad that I met you rather than Jesus Christ. You're so much better. Um, that would be, not that wouldn't work. Yeah, really good point. Um, another possibility then, or a, a, a harmonizing possibility, is that um, they told the heavens that the real music was going on on Earth now. That is that um, it's Anne Killigrew who is producing the music of the spheres. You want to, you know, it, it turns out that the spheres, the rock band named the spheres, is actually playing at a really small club, really small grungy club called Earth that no one expected. And everyone had gone to this fancy nightclub called Heaven, but they weren't there. And and what the brother angels had to say is, no, you want to hear the spheres, you really got to go down this alley and and um, listen to them in this grungy club, Earth. Um, so that's that's uh, that's why also mortal ears would hear the music of the spheres. Um, and so all the blessed fraternity of love solemnized, solemnized there thy birth and kept thy holiday above. So unlike in the St. Cecilia's Day poems, um, here what we're hearing is that in heaven, they're celebrating a holiday for someone on earth instead of on earth celebrating a holiday for someone in heaven like St. Cecilia. And then this leads him to thinking about poetry. So in stanza four, there's a move. Oh, gracious God, how far have we profaned thy heavenly gift of poesy? So what happens is she appears on earth and we suddenly realize when we see a real poet how badly poetry has fallen on earth, which is the gift of God. We have made prostitute and profligate the muse, debased to each obscene and impious use whose harmony was first ordained above for tongues of angels and for hymns of love. Oh, wretched we, why were we hurried down this lubric and adulterate age, nay, added fat pollutions of our own to increase the steaming orgies of the stage? What can we say to excuse our second fall so not only did we fall in the Garden of Eden, but we also fell 
um, with the use we made of the gift of poetry after our first fall. Let this thy vestal, that is Anne Killiger, the vestal virgin of God, heaven, atone for all. Her Arethusian stream remains unsoiled, unmixed with foreign filth and undefiled. Her wit was more than man, her innocence a child. So now he's saying maybe it's a good thing that she died young in the same way that it's a good thing that Jesus died young because, because by doing so, her own poetry remained absolutely pure as she remained a virgin. Um, and by dying, she atoned for what we've done to poetry as Jesus atoned for our first fall also by dying young. Um, she wasn't artful, the next stanza says, but um, everything that she did was natural. And then go to um, stanza six and um, look at um, his astonishment, or the speaker's astonishment, that she's also a painter. Born, he says, to the spacious empire of the nine. Who are the nine? The nine muses. So born to the spacious empire of the nine. One would have thought she should have been content to manage well that mighty government. So she inherits um, and becomes the queen of the domain of poetry. And, the, and you would have thought that would have been enough for her. But what can young, ambitious souls confine? To the next realm, she stretched her sway. So her imperialism takes the form of annexing the next realm, besides that of poetry, that of painting. For painter, near adjoining lay, a plenteous province and alluring prey. A chamber of dependences was framed. Um, if you haven't read a footnote on that, you should. Um, it's a it's a fake um, it's legal cover for um, taking over another kingdom essentially. Um, as conquerors will never want pretense when armed to justify the offense, and the whole fief in right of poetry she claimed. So she claimed the fiefdom of painting in right of poetry. So notice that what he's saying is painting for her, and this is what he thinks, is subordinate to poetry. That is, it's poetry that claims or can claim the fiefdom of painting. Um, what she did was said, yeah, painting belongs to poetry. You can paint, you can illustrate your poems. What really counts is the poems. The country open lay without defense, for poets frequent inroads there had made and perfectly could represent the shape, the face, with every lineament. And all the large domains which the dumb sister swayed all bowed beneath her government. Received in triumph wheresoever she went, her pencil drew whate'er her soul designed, and off the happy draft surpassed the image in her mind. So she could draw whatever she wanted. Um, sometimes it was even better than the image in her mind, um, but she was taking over the domain that poets had already been raiding and making their own. And now he's going to give you an example of that. So this is Dryden now. Um, talking about poetry. He's really not talking about her anymore. He's using the fact that she's a painter to say, look what poetry can do. Here's what she painted. The sylvan scenes of herds and flocks, the fruitful plains and barren rocks of shallow, and barren rocks of shallow brooks that flowed so clear, the bottom did the top appear. Um, what does that mean? Shallow brooks that flowed so clear, the bottom did the top appear? 
Yeah, you can see right through to the bottom so that um, what you were seeing looked like it was above the water rather than below. Of deeper, too, and ampler floods, which, as in mirrors, showed the woods of lofty trees with sacred shades and perspectives of pleasant glades, where nymphs of brightest form appear and shaggy staters standing near. So notice that that's actually quoting her at this point. And so he's moving from her painting to her poetry, which them at once admire and fear. The ruins, too, of some majestic peace, boasting the power of ancient Rome or Greece, whose statues freezes columns broken lie, and though defaced, the wonder of the eye. What nature art, bold fiction, air durst frame, her forming hand gave feature to the name. So strange a conquest ne'er was seen before, but when the peopled ark the whole creation bore. So he's describing her painting, her paintings, and one painting in particular, but he's describing it through poetry at the same time as he says that she is um, a painter and the governess of painting because she's a poet. Um, just to go to the very end of the poem, um, when he's talking about what will happen um, at the last judgment. Um, when in mid-air, this is at stanza 10, when in mid-air the golden trump shall sound to raise the nations underground, when in the valley of Jehoshaphat the judging God shall close the book of fate, and there the last assizes keep, that is the last judgment, for those who wake and those who sleep, those who are still alive and those who are dead, when rattling bones together fly from the four corners of the sky, when sinews or the skeletons are spread, that is when, to quote, done, everyone to their, all go to their scattered, scattered bodies go, those clothed with flesh and life inspires the dead, the sacred poets first shall hear the sound and foremost from the tomb shall bound, for they are covered with the lightest ground, and straight with inborn vigor on the wing like mountain, mounting larks to the new morning sing. There thou, sweet saint, before the choir shalt go, as harbinger of heaven, the way to show the way which thou so well hast learned below. So um, what he's doing is he's essentially saying this poem ends with consolation, as all elegies do. Um, that the death now is not permanent. But he's doing that in order to say that at the last judgment, those who will have the most life and be most sacred among the mortals will be the poets. So essentially, there's a, there's a um, way, not, and not unstandard way, that the elegy for a poet becomes a theory of poetry or a disquisition upon poetry. And here, what he's essentially saying is, what I have to say and will say is that when the last judgment comes, um, she'll be the first and the leader of the saved and of the blessed. And the reason for this is that she's a poet. And therefore, the conclusion from this is that the poets are the um, most vital of all human creators, of all um, uh, practitioners of human culture. And that's why um, poets are covered with the lightest ground, why um, poets are the first 
to spring from the dead. Poets never really die, or they just, great poets just barely die. Um, that's essentially the claim here. Poets are at the center. The question that we were asking, um, what we were talking about, um, is what authority do poets have? Um, here in the elegy for Anne Kilgore, he's saying poets have um, an enormous amount of authority. Um, again, this could be conventional, um, conventional to an elegy, conventional to an elegy about a poet. But it is, it is also Dryden telling you what he thinks the proper poetic conventions are, what a poet should think about poetry. It may be excessive, but this is the kind of excessiveness that poetry would claim for itself. Um, take a look uh, just briefly um, at, if you have the um, penguin, um, at the little poem to John Milton, which I think is a um, really, it's on page, um, page is it on? Oh, uh, page 295, the lines to Mr. Milton. Um, Dryden and Milton had a, they, they knew each other and they respected each other. Um, Dryden got to like Milton more and more as Milton was longer and longer dead. Um, and uh, they, they had a somewhat vexed relationship, although as I say, they did respect each other. Um, Dryden made an opera out of Paradise Lost um, and not one that Milton was happy about. Um, so, but these are the lines on Milton um, about 15 years after Milton's death. Um, and it's just worth looking at these six lines. Three poets in three distant ages born, Greece, Italy, and England did adorn. The first in loftiness of thought surpassed, the next in majesty, the both, in both the last. The force of nature could no farther go to make a third she joined the former two. Um, this, the, these lines were written for an edition of Milton's work um, as a kind of, um, uh, well, what we would now call a blurb. Um, people wrote at the time commendatory verses um, for books of poetry. Um, Milton actually wrote a commendatory verse, a really great poem, one of his Milton didn't actually write that much poetry. Um, what he wrote tended to be long. Um, so he wrote a lot of lines of poetry, but there are not that many different poems written by Milton. The list of his poems is not a very long list. Reading them will take you a long time, but the list isn't a long list. One of those poems is the poem on Shakespeare that Milton wrote, um, which was used as a commendatory verse for um, the third folio of Shakespeare's work. Um, about, uh, I guess it was in the early 1630s, so about uh, 16, about 10 years after the first folio. Um, Brandeis has a first folio and a third folio, so you can actually, and I think their third folio, if I recall correctly, is um, unbound, so you can actually look at the unbound pages, the signature pages, um, which has the first printing of Milton's essay, uh, Milton's um, verses to Shakespeare. Um, and they're great. That is a great poem by Milton, um, the, the poem to Shakespeare. So Dryden is doing a similar thing for Milton. Dryden is um, 25 years younger than Milton and outlived him, 
I guess he's exactly 25 years younger and he outlived him by exactly 25 years, or this is plus or minus a year. Um, so notice that this is a really, this is a deceptively simple poem, but notice how it goes. Three poets in three distant ages born. Um, what does the word distant mean there in that first line? Yeah. Yeah, but is that what you took it to mean at first? No. No, what does distance what does distant usually mean as an adjective? Far from where you are. Far from where you are. So um the so there's already a kind of misdirection um or half misdirection in that first line. You're absolutely right. It does mean that they are distant from each other rather than distant from us. But um of course, two of them are distant from us. And the third one ha is distant from the other two, but in a sense is also, he's saying, distant from us. That is, poets like Milton, you don't get them anymore. Um, 1608 is distant now. Um, it's a new world. It's um, that heroic age is gone forever. So literally, he doesn't mean that. Literally, he means spread out from each other. But he wants you first to misinterpret the word distant, and then to keep some of the aura, some of the, some of the um, uh, tint of that misinterpretation to give you a sense of Milton's greatness, that he is distant in the same way that the other two poets are distant. Three poets in three distant ages born, Greece, Italy, and England did adorn. So these poets adorned Greece, one of them, Italy, one of them, and England, one of them. Um, do we know who they are? By we, I mean we. <laughs> do we? Yeah. Uh, Homer, Virgil, and Yeah, Homer, Virgil, and Milton. Um, but you can also ask, do we know who they are if by we, we, we mean, I mean, um, a 17th century reader of these lines? And the answer is no, we don't. There's three poets mentioned. It's pretty clear from the title and even without the title from the placement of this verse that the one who adorned England was Milton. But we don't know yet that the one who adorned Greece was Homer rather than Sappho, for example, to whom Anne Killigrew is compared, rather than Pindar, who writes odes of the irregular variety that, um, and who's the greatest writer of odes of all time and the writer of irregular odes that Dryden will pick up. We don't know that it's Homer. And as for Italy, we don't know that it's Virgil, although it, this being Dryden, Virgil's a good guess. Um, but it could be Horace or um, Ovid, who are the other two um, great poets writing at the same time as Virgil, or many, many more. Um, of course, there's no question, as soon as you read the poem, that he means Homer and Virgil. But the question is, how do we know that? Um, how does the poem tell us that? So next line. The first in loftiness of thought surpassed what? Finish that line. Surpa what's, the, what's the direct object of surpassed? The other two? Um, yeah, that's what you would think. 
and in fact, that's what the next half line seems to indicate, surpassed the next in majesty, surpassed, surpassed the person who came in number two. That is the one who was almost as majestic and almost as lofty as the first. Um, but that's not what it means. It turns out that surpassed here is an intransitive verb. Usually, when you surpass, you surpass something. Um, I surpassed her um, in, uh, in my bowling score when I got um, a strike in the last frame. Um, but usually you don't go around saying, hey, he surpasses. Um, you can, but it's not, the, it's not the expected use of that. So again, Dryden is engaging in a kind of misdirection that leaves a tint or residue. The first in loftiness of thought surpassed the other two, is what you think. But no, it means the first was the absolute, you don't need a direct object, because he surpassed everyone. Not only the other two, but the entire world in loftiness of thought. That's Homer, the loftiest of all poets. The next in majesty did what? Yeah, so one was surpassingly great in loftiness of thought. The next one was surpassingly great in majesty. So Homer's, as we were about to realize it is Homer, Homer's great feature is loftiness of thought. Virgil's great feature is majesty. In fact, it's majesty of style. Um, and to the extent that that implies majesty of thought, um, Dryden wants that implication, but majesty is a word that goes with style in the 17th century. So one was surpassingly great in loftiness of thought, the second surpassingly great in, lofty, in majesty of style, and then in both the last. Unpack that. Yeah, and who is the last? Milton. Milton. So suddenly, our idea that the reason surpass is intransitive is because Homer surpasses everyone in loftiness of thought, and because Virgil surpasses everyone in majesty of style. Um, suddenly, that idea doesn't quite work, because if Milton, sur Milton seems to surpass everyone in both loftiness of thought and majesty of style. Um, that is suddenly this, the, the other possibility of surpass, which is, 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 is um, unequaled, turns out not to be true. Because both Homer and Milton are unequal in loftiness. Both Virgil and Milton are unequaled in majesty. And that can't be. The idea of unequaled is you can't say both. Um, so it has to be something like, surpassed everyone of their time, or surpassed everyone who came before them, um, or surpassed anything that anyone could um, have expected. But then when you get in, um, in both the last that Milton combines, and you'll hear um, Pope say something like this about Dryden. Um, if, um, if Milton combines the surpassing loftiness of Homer and the surpassing majesty of Virgil, um, then Milton is surpassing in both 
of those. And he kind of explains that in the next line. The force of nature could no farther go. You couldn't go farther than Homer's loftiness or Virgil's majesty. Um, it couldn't be. The force of nature could no farther go. To make a third, she joined the former two. So to make someone, to make a third great poet, and there's a hint of the Trinity here, to make a third great poet, she joined um, the surpassing loftiness of um, Homer, the surpassing majesty of Virgil. But notice, and this is what's really great about it, is that the reason we know that Homer and Virgil are who the first two are is because Milton is what they're being compared to. That is, what Milton does can, will tell you that what you have combined in him are Homer and Virgil. You don't have to name Homer and Virgil except through Milton. You know it's not Horace and Pindar because the person who these two unnamed figures are combined in is Milton. So Milton, so Dryden is really demonstrating Milton's equality, his peerage with Homer and Virgil through the fact that he doesn't need to name them, through the fact that simply by naming Milton, he ends up designating Homer and Virgil as well. Um, that's a really neat trick that you're getting here. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's, a, it's as I say, a deceptively simple um, poem, um, but it's worth seeing what a neat trick it is. Okay, let's go to the song for St. Cecilia's Day. What I really want to spend a little bit more time on is Alexander's Feast, but um, go to the song for St. Cecilia's Day, which is uh, right at, just before it, yeah, um, on page... Um, 292. Um, so St. Cecilia's Day, St. Cecilia is the, saint, is the patron saint of what? Music. Of music. And there's um, a story or a myth that she, it's actually um, wrong, but a story or myth that she invented the organ. Um, it's a misreading of the Latin account of her life. Um, but um, she's just conventionally taken as the inventor of the organ. And the thing about the organ um, is that um, it's a fascinating musical instrument in the imagination of the history of music because, and this is something that Dryden um, points out, it's the first musical instrument that can sustain a note for as long as you want to sustain it. The kind of thing that electronic music does, you know, the, the difference between um, computer music and um, music that you play, even the difference between, well, a synthesizer or a keyboard um, versus a guitar or a piano, um, is that um, you don't have the decay of sound. Um, the decay of sound isn't a necessary part of the performance of the music. Do people understand what I mean? That if you if you hit a note on the piano, even if you hold the key down and hold the pedal down, um, after a little while, the sound will die away. Um, if you hit a drum, it reverberates for a tenth of a second and then stops. If you um, hit a note on the guitar, 
um, it twangs and goes away. I think if you if you bow a violin back and forth, you can keep the sound going, um, but there's still a whole lot of um, of dying away and then and then coming back of the sound. Um, that's the um, maybe maybe um, bowed instruments are the closest thing to organs before organs. But the thing about organs is you can keep pumping them. Um, and so once you have a sound going through an organ, you can keep the sound going through and it doesn't, it doesn't die away. Um, so that's actually, that's a kind of revolution in music. It's something that, um, that couldn't be done before except with the um, partial exception of bowed instruments. Um, so the invention of the organ is a really, really important um, um, idea for her patronage of music. Um, St. Cecilia's Day was a holiday, a kind of guild holiday that um, was being celebrated um, by musicians um, in um, England starting actually just a couple of years before this. And the tradition was to um, um, uh, get a poet uh, to write a poem in honor of the day, which would then be set to music. Um, the song for St. Cecilia's Day from 1687, um, the music survives. Um, I actually haven't heard it. Um, sung it. You've sung it? You've sung the Handel or the original? Handel. Yeah, so Handel, Handel 50 years later, um, reset both of Dryden's St. Cecilia's Day poems to his own music. And the Handel is really good. Um, can you sing it now? Really? It was in high school. I can't get remember. <laughs> I just, when I was reading it, I was like, I've, I've heard this before. Have I heard this before? Oh, oh I've sung it. Yeah. <laughs> Not only have I heard it, I've sung it. I just remember my choir director telling us over, like reading the last bit over, um, but Bright Cecilia raised the wonder higher. He's like, this line is so important. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, it is. <laughs> He's right. This line is so important. Um, <laughs> On the other hand, what we want to reconstruct is Dryden writing it. That is, he wrote it and then it was set to music rather than um, being given the music and then writing words for it. Um, partly you can see that by its irregularity, um, even if you didn't know that, even if I weren't telling you. You could see it by the fact that it's an irregular ode, um, which is um, often the irregular odes are considered, I guess I should say something about that. Um, most poems are regular. Um, that is, sonnets have a regular form. The heroic couplet has a regular form with some variation with Alexandrines and um, triplets. Um, ballads have regular forms. Um, the um, Troilus and Cressida stanza, the, the, which is um, rhyme royal, has a regular form. The Spencerian stanza is regular, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that regularity means that we expect certain things to come back at certain times in certain places. Um, odes are often regarded as um, the hardest and also the most sublime form of lyric poetry because what they do is they follow a kind of unfolding representation of passionate thought or of passionate utterance as it unfolds so that it's not the case that you are, um, the, the illusion in an ode, all poetry obviously is, is the tempering of form to content and content to form. 
But what an ode tends to give you is a sense that the content is dictating the form far more than the form is dictating the content. Um, free verse is actually um, maybe the, a modern analog to what to the Pindar to the Pindaric ode um, with its irregular form, where it will break into more rhyme or less rhyme into rhymes that are close to each other or farther away, um, long lines or short lines um, based on the emotion that the speaker is feeling at any particular time. Um, so odes are, in a way, the hardest kind of poem to read and the hardest kind of poem to write well, um, just because they actually seem to have fewer rules and therefore to seem easier than other kinds of poets. But there are very few great odes, and the reason is they're really, really hard. Um, among those very few great odes, Dryden wrote a large percentage of them in English. Um, and um, this is, it's called a song, but this is one. So from harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began. So it's a, it's a song or ode or poem um, in favor of music, and it praises music. From harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began when nature underneath a heap of jarring atoms lay. Have you noticed how often, how interested he is in atoms? Um, have you noticed uh, in Religio Laici, he, he talks about um, did the world really come out of the, some atoms interfering dance? Um, lots of stuff about atoms. Well, he gets it from Lucretius, and there's a lot of stuff about atoms in Lucretius. Um, Lucretius follows Demosthenes in having an atomic theory of matter. Um, this is not the modern atomic theory, um, which came about 100 years after Dryden. Um, but it's a kind of um, precursor to the modern theory. That is that atoms are all just tiny little bits of things that are bonking into each other all the time. Um, Lucretius thought that they had to move randomly. That was one of his most famous claims is that if atoms didn't move randomly, if there weren't sudden random changes in direction in the motion of atoms, um, they would all fall down to the ground and nothing would happen and nothing would move. Um, so Lucretius explicitly in De Rerum Natura, the poem that we read some of Dryden's translation of, Dryden translated some of it, um, they dance in wild and chaotic ways. Um, that, for Lucretius, is, is um, a theory of matter and of motion. And Dryden is very interested in that. So, um, but he says they're at, yeah? Um, Dryden belongs to the Royal Society, right? Excuse me? He, he belongs to the Royal Society. Yeah. Did, was he, did he engage in any scientific experiments? Not that I know of, but I, I can't say for certain, but, um, huh, look it up. <laughs> That would be a good thing to look up. I'll try to find out, but um, not that I know of. Um, but he talked to people who did. So, from harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began. When nature underneath a heap of jarring atoms lay and could not heave her head, the tuneful voice was heard from high. Okay, stop there. What's the rhyme scheme of this poem? Um, 
It's irregular, so it's going to be hard to say there's a regular rhyme scheme, but get some sense of the rhyme scheme on the basis of those lines. Quote Paulina in The Winter's Tale, I like your silence. <laughs> so here we are, one, two, three, four, five, six lines in. And what is noticeable about the line endings in Mr. Heroic Couplet? There are no couplets? Yeah, there's no rhyme whatever in those first six lines. Yeah, he's not fudging here. Uh, yeah, I, or no, I, 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 I correct myself. He is fudging, but he doesn't. That is, he wants a subliminal fudging there. That is, he wants um, you to register what will later be called a slant rhyme or an off rhyme, but not to register it as a rhyme. So what you're getting here is um, something pretty amazing in Dryden which is that it looks like very irregular blank verse. Of those types in the heroic couplets when he suddenly breaks off. I actually just accidentally came upon one which is a really good example from Religio Laici. Um, I will just read. Um, uh, Canst thou by reason more of Godhead know than Plutarch, Seneca, or Cicero? Those giant wits in happier ages born, when arms and arts did Greece and Rome adorn, knew no such system, no such piles could raise of natural worship built on prayer and praise to one sole God. Nor did remorse to expiate sin prescribe, but slew their fellow creatures for a bribe. So notice that that half line to one sole God, that's just a half line to one sole God. Why? Because it's describing one sole God. Um, Dante very famously does not run, uses the word Christ um, in, I think it's in each of the books of the Divine Comedy. Christ is one of the, you know that the Divine Comedy is written in terza rima, which means that every rhyme, every line rhymes with two other rhyme, two other lines. Do people know this? Um, so the rhyme scheme of the Divine Comedy, which is Dante's invention, is three line stanzas that are interlinked or enchained with each other. So it's A, B, A is the first stanza. And the second stanza is B, C, B. So you notice you have B from the first stanza, now becomes B and B again in the second stanza. Then the third stanza is C, D, C. So the middle line of the second stanza becomes the framing lines of the third stanza. It's called terza rima because each line um, is, each line is part of a triple rhyme. Um, a, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, C, D, E, D, etc. Um, with exceptions at the very beginning and the very end, but, but um, almost every line um, rhymes three times. Um, Dante uses the name Christ in, I think it, actually it is each of the books. And when he uses Christ as the rhyme word, he doesn't rhyme it with any other word. He rhymes it with Christ. That is, he'll have three lines. That is, let's say it's B, C, B, um, C, D, C. And let's say the C is appropriately Christ. 
then the C rhymes will be Christ, Christ, Christ. And part of the point is you don't go rhyming Christ with other stuff. Um, Christ stands alone. Dryden is doing something similar when he has that half line, to one soul God. This one soul standout half line, unlike the stately or rapid progress of the heroic couplets throughout. So um, here, what he's doing is you get a whole bunch of lines like that. From harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began. When nature, underneath a heap of jarring atoms, lay and could not heave her head, the tuneful voice was heard from high. This is practically prose. I mean, it's not, but it's practically prose. How is it self-describing? Always a question to ask about any poem. How is it self-describing? Yeah, well, Leah. Well, it's uh, describing the chaos, and it's itself is chaotic. Yeah, it's describing chaos. It's it, it is itself chaotic. What are the what would um, the jarring atoms map onto in this poem? Yeah, the unrhyming lines are like jarring atoms. So he's praising harmony, and yet what you get instead are a bunch of jarring lines, lines that are heaped together without any rhyme or reason, literally without any rhyme or reason. That's the point, they're just heaped together. Until God speaks, the tuneful voice that's heard from high, arise ye more than dead. And what happens there? It starts rhyming. So God speaks, and what he speaks is the atoms into rhyme. So arise ye more than dead. Now nature couldn't heave her head into rhyming. But God does it for nature by saying, arise ye more than dead. More than dead here would mean that you're both even more inert than death itself but also more alive than dead things. But it, you really have to see that it means more inert than death itself, without me. Um, you're worse than dead. Um, otherwise, he would say, arise ye living things. Um, but he says, arise ye more than dead. And yet, by saying that word dead, he gives it life. Even if God says dead, he gives it life. Arise ye more than dead. Then cold and hot and moist and dry, in order to their stations leap and music's power obey. From harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began. From harmony to harmony, through all the compass of the notes it ran, the diapason closing full in man. And what does it do? How is this stanza resolved? Harmony. Sorry? With harmony. With harmony, and it closes in man in the word man, and in the creation of man, the, um, um, the final harmony of the natural world. So the stanza is describing what it's also doing, or it's doing what it's describing. We end with the word man. We get the final nail-it-down rhyme in the word man. So the, the DFA's on closing full in man as a word and man as a concept, both of them simultaneously. And the fact that, man, that word and concept come together there is the whole point. 
that word and concept harmonize with each other in this poem which describes how word and concept can harmonize with each other. Um, so then he tells the story and the history of music. What passion cannot music raise and quell? Um, and that's a great description of what music does. It raises and quells passions. Um, it gives you the feeling of passion and then it quells it. Um, let's go forward though. Um, well, he, so, so then, and I should just say, so then he does a kind of version of ekphrasis, but now with music. Um, he writes poems in, in imitation of the trumpet. He writes poems in imitation of the drum, or lines and stanzas in, in imitation of the drum, um, the double, double, double beat of the thundering drum. Um, Poe is going to pick up a similar mode in his poem, The Bells. Oh, the bells, 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 what a tale of hope deceived, their harmony foretells, etc. Um, but it's Dryden who's doing that first, giving you poetry that sounds like the instruments it's describing. Um, the soft complaining flute in dying notes discovers the woes of helpless lovers whose dirge is whispered by the warbling lute. Um, and you can hear that that's a kind of long flute sounds. And then you get the sharp violins proclaim their jealous pangs and desperation, fury, frantic indignation, depth of pains and height of passion for the fair disdainful dame. Um, if you didn't know what violin playing was like in the 17th century, you'd get a sense of it, um, that there's a lot of pizzicati in the violin playing. Um, and then finally, the organ. But oh, that oh is, the sustain, is sustaining. But oh, what art can teach, what human voice can reach, the sacred organ's praise, notes inspiring holy love, notes that wing their heavenly ways to mend the choirs above. Um, and so it becomes the praise of the, the letter, the sound of the O, the vowel which is sustained, but O, what heart can teach. And then look at all those O's. Voice, organ, notes, holy, love, notes, choirs above Orpheus. Orpheus could lead the savage race and trees unrooted left their place sequacious of the lyre. Um, so Trees followed Orpheus playing the lyre, but bright Cecilia raised the wonder higher when to her organ vocal breath was given. An angel heard and straight appeared, mistaking earth for heaven, um, which has to do with the myth of Saint Cecilia also, um, which if you guys didn't read, read the footnote. Um, and then we get the creation of the world through harmony and then its destruction also through harmony. As from the power of sacred lays, the spheres began to move. Remember the motion of the spheres, the music of the spheres. As from the power of sacred lays, the spheres began to move and sung the great creator's praise to all the blessed above. So when the last and dreadful hour this crumbling pageant shall devour, think of Prospero, um, that we are such stuff as dreams are made of, the pageant of um, that he shows Miranda and Ferdinand disappears. When at the last judgment, the crumbling pageant of the earth is devoured, 
Even so, there'll be music. The trumpet shall be heard on high. So now we're back to the trumpet. Um, the trumpet shall be heard on high. The dead shall live. The living die. And music shall untune the sky. Um, scary word there, that the destruction of the world, which is created by harmony, will be by some climactic dissonance, fortissimo, of the music itself, that what tuned the world will also untune it, and even the sky itself will be untuned. Um, famous line that you can really, you should allow to percolate um, around in your mind. Let's just look at the start of Alexander's Feast, um, written 10 years later, but again for St. Cecilia's Day. And here he tells a little story. And the story is the story of Timotheus. Um, who was um, Alexander's um, musician. This is Alexander the Great. So here's the feast that Alexander, so Alexander's feast is, takes place at, the frame is the feast that Alexander threw after he had um, defeated um, uh, Darius and um, conquered Persia. Um, so it was at the royal feast for Persia, one by Philip's warlike son. Um, what page is it? 391. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a different uh, version. Uh, Twas at the loyal at the royal feast for Persia, one by Philip's warlike son. So Philip's son Alexander has has conquered Persia. Aloft in awful state, the godlike hero sate on his imperial throne. So this is Alexander sitting on his throne. His valiant peers were placed around, their brows with roses and with myrtles bound. So should desert in arms be crowned, that is, with, with roses and with myrtles. The lovely Theus by his side sat like a blooming eastern bride in flower of youth and beauty's pride. Happy, happy, happy pair, none but the brave, none but the brave, none but the brave deserves the fair. And then the chorus repeats that. Um, so Alexander and Theus are sitting as guests of honor at their part, the party they're throwing for conquering Persia. And then Timotheus plays. Timotheus placed on high amid the tuneful choir with flying fingers touch the lyre. The trembling notes ascend the sky and heavenly joys inspire. So the rest of the poem, which we'll look at on Friday, describes um, the music that Timotheus plays to Alexander. Um, it's a story worth knowing um, and a poem worth doing. Um, so we will read that. We'll, we'll do that. Um, you should read the preface to fables, ancient and modern. Um, and the um, Virgil and the Homer. Um, and also reread, if you didn't do it for today, um, reread the Horatian, the translations from Horace um, that are right after the translations from Lucretius. Okie doke. See you on uh, Friday.